0: Why don't you open your Bibles to the Psalms again. Last week we were looking at Psalms 28. I want you to turn to Psalms 27. I like to read the Psalms. I like to read them slow and see if I can understand what they're saying and what is God saying to me when I read these things. And on occasion you get inspired, that is, if God is saying that to me and I can see some things here. There's a lot to see In the Psalms, of course, sometimes it kind of jumps around, but sometimes you can see things there, and, and I think, you know, this would be a good thought for us to ponder, a good idea, a good message here, a lesson that God is showing us that we need to ponder. Like Psalms 27 and 28, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody quote them. Now, we sang a song in Psalms 27, but not very often is it quoted like, the last verse, the 14th verse, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he will strengthen thy heart. Now we do sing that, it's a very pretty song. But I believe anytime you read the Bible, anytime you open up the word of God, whether it's an exercise in the morning of just reading and pondering or meditating on it, or whether you're studying something, searching out something, I think there's always an opportunity for God to speak to you about something. You can go to the big and I am sure that, depending on what's going on in your life and where you are in your walk, God can say something in those that really touch your heart and your life. Now tonight, Psalms 27, let's begin in verse one. And of course it goes through verse 14. I want to read the first verse, make a few comments, and then we're kinda gonna go through it that way. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, you've got to remember that David wrote this, and many times in his life, he's on the run. He's fleeing from Saul, or in some cases from Absalom, from people that he will not try to harm, the people that he would not kill. He had a chance to kill Saul, and he would not do it. And so here's a man who is on the run his life is in peril or in danger often but he's able to say no matter what circumstance and what cave he's hiding in or where he is he was able to say the lord is my light and my salvation he goes on to say he is the strength of my life and twice in one verse he says who should i be afraid of or whom should i fear now, that same thing applies to us also. We're not running from somebody. We're not in a cave, but we have an adversary. It's the devil. And he works overtime to kill, steal, and destroy. And he comes at us in various ways. that are all opportunities to overcome, but he comes at us. He brings his parcel of problems to you. And none of them are fun, none of them are easy. We sometimes get stressed out and they're fretful about things. But there's a lesson to be learned, and as he brings these things to you, some things just begin to shine as you look back upon them. For example, light. And we talk about light a lot. We mention it a lot. Light is to me the most easily understand when it's contrasted with darkness. If you imagine a life of darkness, you have to imagine a life of uncertainty. You don't know where you're going. You're not sure if you're where you should be. You can't make heads or tails of things in your life. You can't see clearly what's always right or always wrong or if you should do this or do that. People without light are people who stumble through life. Like Jesus referenced once, the blind who lead the blind is that they will both fall into a ditch because they're walking in darkness. And yet there's a lot of people who are in darkness and don't know it. And the darkness is what they believe. They're believing something that God will not bless. or They're trying to live in a way they've been taught that God will not honor. Put your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 6. For just a moment. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 23 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, but if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. Well, he's not talking about your physical body because inside of your body, obviously it's dark. Nobody can see what's going on because of everything else that's in there. It's a figure of speech. Your body is you. Your body is referring to you and how you're living your life. Do you see that, the second half of that verse? If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is the darkness. Now what does that mean? It would do us no good to memorize that verse of scripture or quote it to other people if we didn't know what it meant. If light has to do with direction, and it does, the entrance of thy words giveth light. Thy word is a lamp or a light unto my feet and my path. So light here has to do with being illumined so that you can see where you're going. Everybody needs light. I can't live off of your light any more than one of the five foolish virgins can look off of somebody else's light. you got to have your own light. You can't depend on other people to see the way to go while you try to follow them. you got to have light. God gives light. His word is light. He said about those who preach, but who preach darkness and make it sound like light. He said, if they speak not according to this word, they have no light. That is, what they're preaching to you will not lead you where God wants you to be. It'll give you something to do. It might make you feel good and inspire you. Error has a way of doing it. The devil has a way of pumping that up and adding feelings to it. You just feel so good, boy, that was a robust, rousing message, whoa, and all that. But actually, if you look at the end of the life of those that are going that way, it's still full of sadness, still full of sorrow, still full of disappointments, still full of uncertainty, still full of not really being sure about this or that or kind of this way and that way, because it's still a message that's dark. Think of this. If the light that is in you be darkness... Now, light means what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing, the way I'm going, this is how I see it. People say it all the time. Well, this is how I see it. And you're following something as you interpret it. But he said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how could that be? How could that be? Well, it's like this. What you're calling light really isn't the light that God gives at all it's deception. You're being deceived. The word deceived means to mislead or to draw false conclusions. And when you walk that way, you're not going to be where God wants you to be. And yet this world, the Christian world today, Christianity today is full of do-it-yourself religion For whatever you think it says, and you know, we're all going to the same place. All religions lead to the same place, and and they're all together, one, and all of that. And you get this idea of the ecumenical thoughts. It doesn't matter what church you go to or how you worship. We're all going to heaven anyway. But that's darkness. Now, that's darkness. Because the Bible doesn't say that. Now, people are offended who are in darkness when you tell them they're in darkness. Not frequently can you rescue somebody out of darkness. Because as Jesus said, men love darkness better than light. And he was the light in John 1. He was the light that came to the world, and they didn't want him, they didn't know him, and they liked darkness better than light, so they rejected him. They reject him today. They reject him as I speak. They have no light. The light they have is misleading. I'm trying to make a point. Jesus said, if the light that you have amounts to nothing more than your opinions, your ideas, or how you're seeing it, but it's not confirmed by the word, it is darkness. And you'll be praying and challenging God and praying and wishing and hoping and praying, and you'll get no answers because God does not have to respond to man's passion if man's passions are misled. Christianity doesn't understand that. In this politically correct age, things have gotten soft. People are afraid to bear down. If you bear down and call black, black, and white, white, people are offended by it. And so people don't want to do that anymore. And like Hosea said, my people are destroyed. Why? For lack of knowledge. We're afraid if we tell people the truth, they won't like us. I might not be popular anymore. And on and on and on. Look at verse 24. It has to do with your choices because this is the context. In verse 24, he said, No man can serve two masters. Either he will hold the one and love the other, or else he will hold on to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in something else. Let me add that to the light, though. In the Sermon on the Mount, it looks like a secondary thought. But I believe you could say this. People who love darkness more than light challenge the light. Why does that have to be the only way? They think they can serve God any way they want to. They can come to church when they please. They can study if they please. They can pray if they please. They can give if they want to. They have this whole thing structured to the way they think it should be. And they're not serving God. And if you tell them they're not serving God, they are offended. It's just one of those things in life that Christians are guilty of. Keep your finger in Psalm 27 and look at Psalm 43. I think it's verse 3. Oh, send out thy light and thy truth, and let them lead me. How else, pray tell, can anybody who calls himself a Christian come to the Lord and follow the Lord without his light? For the 10th time already, there are many things that many churches call light. Well, the Lord showed me this. The Lord showed me that. The Lord showed me this. And most of the time, that's not true. But they like that to be true. It sounds good when you're preaching to tell the congregation, well, the Lord showed me, the Lord told me this. I was talking to him the other day, and throughout our conversation, a brother whom I love very much, we're not on the same page, but he's a brother. And he would say, you know, the Lord told me this, and the Lord told me that, and I'm thinking... That's quite a life. That's a prophet's life, and Lord really said things like that to you. But I don't know if I can believe that or not, because when you tell me the Lord told me this and that, and then what you tell me, I think, I don't think that's exactly what God meant. But I'm not there to correct this fellow yet, at least not yet. And so we just talked. But it's amazing how convenient it is, especially in leadership. In churches how convenient it is to manufacture your own light and if the people like you if they love you you can almost say whatever you want to and they'll follow you unless they are taught not to do that you teach people don't follow anybody because no matter how much you like them because they said something Search the Scriptures and see for yourself. You've got to have your own light. You've got to see what God is saying and not just take somebody's word for it. It's good to be instructed by somebody who walks with the Lord, but it doesn't mean that everything they say can be accepted as the word of God or light from God without you finding out for yourself. I never met anybody or read anybody yet that had everything right. Not everything. The only one I've ever read after, I believe, that had everything right was Jesus. I think he had it all right. Amen. I really do. A second thing, if you go back to Psalm 27, he said, the Lord is my light. Not Brother Hamilton, not my mother, not any other person, but the Lord is my light. And what else is the Lord? He's my salvation. Again, salvation For a lot of just religious people, church members, salvation means you went forward, held your hand up, signed a card, went through catechism. Whatever your church is in its structure signifies that you've graduated from being lost to being saved. if you take communion, you're saved. Or if you come forward in a crusade or a church meeting, you're saved. What they're really saying is that you were born Again. Because salvation is a process. It begins with the new birth. There's actually three stages to salvation. One, salvation begins with the new birth, and in that new birth, the believer has been saved from the penalty and the power of sin. Second stage is living the life. It's what we're doing now. Like Paul said in Philippians 2, he said, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or in 1 Peter 1, he says, you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. But bear in mind that if you're going to be saved, you have to walk by faith as long as you're alive on this earth. Because those that have been made right with God live by faith, and they walk by faith. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that God is a rewarder of whoever signed the card and held their hand up, got wet in the baptistry, you know. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So salvation involves that. It is a process. You were rescued out of sin and you were cleansed and you were brought to God and he has put you before him with the idea now of changing your life. In order for you to be changed by God, he is given in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That is, he chooses men, he anoints common, ordinary people, and he gives them something to say to you. The purpose of that word is to change and transform your life and renew your mind a process by which you begin to learn what God's will is for you and how you should live and how you should relate to God. And I mean, you begin to avail yourself to that. You don't reject that and say, that's an option in my life. It is a necessity. Let me tell you something. The Word of God, it's dispensing from God, to it's coming from God to you, is a necessity. Amen. It is not an option. It is not a take it or leave it or I don't need it. It is not that. Jesus said, Martha, Martha said, only one thing is necessary. What a message. If you're a young preacher getting ready to go in here, get that one. Make that one up and put it in the back of your Bible. One thing is necessary. And you know what it was? It's hearing the word of God. What else does God do to his church to give it information about what he wants them to do? What other way have you ever heard it? Have you ever heard his voice shout down to the plaster falls from the ceiling? Have you ever had a door burst open in the side of that big building and an angel walk in and start preaching? How else does God give you information? He could give it any way he wants to, but you know how he does? He takes people and he anoints them. That is, he sprinkles uniqueness, divine uniqueness in what they're doing. And when they do what he wants them to do, that uniqueness causes the words to come out and they are supposed to have an effect upon the hearers so that you begin to be challenged, alerted, fired up, stimulated, whatever it is, so that you begin to deal with what you're hearing. Everything's personal when God speaks to you. God doesn't speak in circles. He speaks direct, right to you and me. And he puts these kind of ministries in the church so that we can work out our salvation. That is, so we can grow and develop and come to a place. We are being changed from glory to glory to glory. We are spectacles to our families and to the world, the communities that God saved us in, the worksite. site. They knew us one time like this. They knew us struggling sinners. Now they see us Christians and we walk through this and we (coughs) go through that and they mock us and make fun of us. But one day they realize that everything we've said has worked for us. And God's saving ways are what we are doing when we're walking daily with the Lord. We are walking out our salvation. One commentator said this about salvation. He said, the word means deliverance, rescue, safety, welfare. I like this definition. I'm not a big Schofield fan. I think the first real Bible I had was a Schofield Bible. But he did have this one statement in Romans chapter 1. as an annotation. You know what an annotated Bible is? The author has his notes in the Bible to tell you what he sees or what he thinks that verse is saying for your interest. But Schofield said this, Salvation is a great inclusive word of the gospel, gathering unto itself all the redemptive acts and processes as justification, redemption, grace, propitiation, imputation, forgiveness, sanctification, and glorification. All the things that lead to these things are a part of salvation. Salvation includes your healing and your health. When God saves you, he saved all of you. And to be healed, to be delivered, to be set free from bondage and things that held you back and held you down and defeat you. To be in that gloomy state all the time or just a wretched state of always complaining. My goodness. People that complain all the time are so negative about so many things, they're in bondage. They are bound. They can't get happy, joyful, or peaceful because they're bound to talk like that. Well, part of salvation is a message that will deliver you from that. In saving you, God saves all of you body, soul, spirit. The whole deal. We think it only includes, well, you're saved to go to heaven, and between here and heaven, you know, you never know, and and life may throw you a curveball, and, you know, you can't be sure, and God... That's a lie. That's darkness. It's preached every Sunday in America. Every Sunday somewhere it's preached. You're told that you can't get past having your sins forgiven. It might not work for you. It doesn't always work. You can't be sure... What in the world did Psalm 103 say? He forgiveth all your iniquities. Why put a period there? And he heals all your diseases. That's part of salvation. Being healed. Being whole. Being peaceful. Being joyful. I don't know why I'm hollering. I like to come here and holler. (laughs) But... It's just so much to being saved that we can look forward to. And the joy, when it's real, when all of this becomes real to you, you just want to worship the Lord. Praise God. I serve a risen Savior. Hallelujah. He's in the world today. We have so much to be thankful for because God goes beyond just the idea of saving you, if that's all it is, but he saves you. He rescues you, he delivers you, he equips you, he leads you, he guides you, he brings you. And it's all of God. It's all by faith. You're trusting for everything that goes on in your life. Like Peter said, you receive the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. The third stage of salvation is when the resurrection of your body takes place. 1 Corinthians 15, we shall all be changed. John wrote in First John 3, he said, we don't know what we shall be like, but this we do know, that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be. Something is going to happen when he gets here, which will be the completion or the final stages of what is called salvation. Because when your body is changed and you're made with a new body and you're with him, it's done. It is done. You're done. It's like when you get to heaven, you won't need faith anymore. Why would you need faith when you get to heaven? You won't need it because you don't have to believe anything when you're in heaven. You're there. Otherwise, if you had to have faith in heaven and you didn't, you could sin. And you won't. And you can't. I think it's great. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I do. To be able to say as David did in some nasty cave, God is my light and my salvation. (laughs) If he's all what I just said, for what do we give him up and fall prey to in fear? Didn't he say in Romans 8, 31, if God be for us, we've been repeating this for three weeks now, if God be for us, who shall be against us? That's the very thing that he said. (laughs) It's wonderful that in salvation, God brings you out of darkness He secures you, and he leads you. And you can tell by looking at a person's life. You can see it. It can't be denied. It's like a city set on a hill. You can see it. It's like a candle that's burning in a dark room. You can see it. I believe this. I believe God makes sure that the world can see that he walks with you. And if he does, like he said, why should I be afraid? Of whom should I fear? Think of verse 2 and 3. The testimony that I want my enemy to see, as well as the testimony I want my friends to see, is the testimony of God being on my side with his favor. You know what favor is? It's grace. I like to have this testimony along with you folks here in our lives, That when the devil comes against us, when people are bad-mouthing us, saying whatever they say, doing whatever they do, whatever kind of activity is going on to make you just fret and fall away, I like to think that when the enemy comes in, so does God. And because of the way you've chosen to live, God does very special things for you. Notice verse 2 And three, when the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat up my flesh, they don't literally mean to chew on your body, figure of speech, to destroy you, to consume you. They stumbled and fell. What did he say? Well, it means when my enemies come against me to destroy my ministry, or my family, or my life, or my possessions, or my character. When they came against me he said they stumbled and they fell. I don't want to speak about this but just a moment but I can remember a few years ago actually it was 20 years ago that a lot of people started yapping when the faith camp began to crumble when another spirit came into this thing and people went the wrong way and began to say things they should not say. I took a stand against some things, and they just spoke ugly and ugly and more ugly. Now, I look back over all these years, and just what I've seen as I read that verse, I thought of this today, and I'll be careful how I say this because I don't want this to come out wrong, but I'm still here. I'm still standing, and it looks like almost everybody that took a stand against, they've all gone, died, and fallen away or something. Now, folks, I do believe that God honors his word. Amen. I don't think that any of us, you, me, or anybody else, is better, more advanced, of greater value to God than anybody else. But I don't think God plays favorites either. I think if you make up your mind to walk with the Lord, to seek his kingdom, to love him, and do the best you can with what you got, that everybody that tries to throw you off course and tear you down will have to deal with God. Because he's not going to let people just throw you off course and and defeat you or ruin your life because they don't like you. As he said, when the wicked, even my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Why? You could go back to the thing about light and darkness. Because God will honor his light. And I think all error and all wickedness and evil has to do with the inspiration of darkness. And God will make sure that light prevails. Verse three, though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this, in this I will be confident. I would call this point in verse 2 and 3 the testimony of a faithful life. Because when a man is faithful, he begins to be assured. He begins to be confident that if God said it, he really will do it. It may not look like it's been a long time and nothing's happened, but God cannot lie. If he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. Because he's God. And I refuse to turn away, turn aside, give in to the negative and give in to all the naysayers. I still believe that God's going to do what he said, and I'm going to hold on to it. I told a fellow on the phone yesterday, another, a friend of mine. He's talking about all the new things that God is doing, and so I thought, here's my opportunity. I said, you know, when I look back over the last almost 43 years now, 43 years in the end of June, When I look back in my life of the last 43 years, everything I've ever believed, as I have read it and seen it since I started, he's honored everything I've ever done. I would be a fool to think that that's not what he's doing now and try something new. I'm going to stick with the old paths. I like the old wine. When I get a good meal from one restaurant, I don't even go to other ones. Well, yeah, but what about this I said, I'm sure it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. But this one over here, I guarantee when you get in there, take your checkbook. We don't go all the time. But when you go in there and you order that one particular thing, you ain't going to get a dud. You're going to get something good, and you're going to be pleased every time you walk out of that place. Man, it is right. Well, this restaurant over here is better. I'm sure it is, but I'm going to this one. Well, Bonnie and I go to a certain place on Thursday night many times to eat, and I've read the menu, had everything on at once, but there's only one that I get every time. I don't even read anymore. I want this one right here. Why don't you experiment? Don't need to, don't want to. I know what I'm going to get before I get it, and I'm waiting on it because my taste buds are saying yippee ki yo or whatever they say, you know. Praise the Lord. But one of the things about verse 3, when he said, I have this kind of confidence and my enemies come against me and I'm not afraid of them. In Proverbs, there's a verse that says this. Let me say this for all of you that are warring. Put your finger wherever you are and turn over to Proverbs 16. This is a wonderful restaurant here if the word is food. You get a great meal here and you won't forget this one unless your passions take over. Proverbs 16 and verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord. Now stop. What does that mean? It means what it says. How do I know if my way pleases the Lord? How do I know if the way I'm conducting my affairs is the way it pleases God? How do I know? Is there some way tonight in Shelbyville Christian Assembly or those of you all over the world and wherever else, is there some way that I can find out if my ways please the Lord? How can I find out? Because, you know, here's the deal. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. Just like a soft answer, instead of yakety yak, a soft answer turns away wrath. It does. But he said, when a man's ways please the Lord, how can I find out? Well, Doesn't the Bible say examine yourself to see if you're in the faith? In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, do you not measure yourself by this? Is this book not a mirror? Does it not say whoso looketh into the mirror of the law and take a stock of what he sees and doesn't walk away and forget what he heard? Doesn't he say that if you look into this word, you begin to see something? Doesn't it say that by the work of the Holy Spirit you'll be transformed into the same thing you're looking at? Well, then I need to find out if I'm living this particular way because if that's, this is the way walky in it, here's the deal. If I'm willing to pay that price, and not many are, but if I'm willing to pay that price and quit doing so many things that I'm not doing right, just quit, start doing the right things. Quit dismissing or excusing yourself and start doing right thing. You get on yourself. Get hard on yourself. Grab yourself by the back of your collar and yank yourself over somewhere and whip the fire out of yourself. <laughs> or else God will. But when my ways measure up to the standard that God gives us in his word... The Bible says your enemies will be at peace with you. All them people that are aggravating you, all them people that agitate you. I've been able to say this before. I'll say it to you tonight. Please don't disappoint me. But I said, you know, in light of the fact I've been here for almost 30 years, me and you have never known anybody else but us in the church. You know, I mean, 30 years we've all been in one little group. In light of all that, we've had a number of problems. I had very, very, very few problems that were just really terrible, difficult, very few. Could it be that the harder we try to do what's right, say what's right, and speak what's right, and live what's right, that God is giving us peace with our enemies? Would it be nice to know that, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil? That God is with me, protect me, and keep me? Because when my ways please the Lord, what does he do? When a man's ways please the Lord, what does God do? He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Boy, you got to love this one. Go back to the Psalms, and now venture back to Psalms 3. Boy, this is a wonderful, wonderful, this is a vacation spot, not a restaurant. Psalms 3, this is tennis shoe country. So, you know, what's that supposed to mean? Well, when you read this, you've got to put your tennis shoes on because you're very apt to start running. It's so good. Let me read it for you. Hold your hand up if you're really sad and disgusted and I just don't know what you're going to do. All right? Let me read this. Verse one Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, Hamilton has no help. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hills, Selah. I laid me down and slept. Sound like he's not too tore up. I awakened, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Sounds like he loves them. Verse 8, salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. You have got to like that. You have got to like that. That's a wonderful psalm. Many are they that are camped round about us. Many are they who say of our souls that we're fools, that we're some kind of a cult, that we've taken the word too far. We've overdone it. You're being brainwashed, which I hope you are. I hope your mind is being renewed every day. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I'm not going to walk in shame when God is with me. You're my glory and you're the lifter of my head. And so on and so forth. He said, in this I will be confident. Go back to Psalm 27, verse 4. Let's use verse 4 and verse 8. Verse 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may be rich and healthy and own all the land in Shelby County and win the lottery and give it all away. Right. I know you're in verse 4 now. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In verse 8, when thou saidst, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Isn't that good? That is a wonderful thought. I mean, again, when you read this, just to read it, and you get to that, like in verse 4, to ponder it, you ask yourself, Am I like that? One thing have I desired. Who would say such a thing as one thing that I desire, one thing that I will seek after? And That's to be in your presence. Who else in the Bible said that? Paul in Philippians 3. He said there's one thing that he wants more than anything else. And you know what it was? To know the Lord. What is it about knowing the Lord that affects a man that knew way more than we know like that? We could say Paul was brilliant in what he knew, but Paul was anointed. God revealed things to Paul. The brilliance wasn't in Paul. The brilliance belongs to God. Paul was just a person. He was a gifted man, and he was a learned man. He wasn't a fool. But he couldn't have learned anything that he knew unless God had shown it to him. But what is it about a man of learning that so dominates his wishes and desires and his walk in this life to where he says, you know, having learned, taught, traveled all over the place, instructed hundreds, started churches, prayed with, cast out, raised. After all of these things, the effect of my walk with God has brought me to the place where only one thing in this life really satisfies, and that's knowing God. To know Jesus, to know him personally. I don't like another word they use a lot is the word intimacy. I don't like to use that word because of the way I have always learned its meaning. It has a correct meaning. But to know the Lord personally, and I'll use a different word, privately and personally, just to know Jesus. To be able to know what to do without having to go in a hole for three or four weeks to find out or fast for five days, just to have his presence so with you that he is so willing, that Jesus is so willing to walk with you that way that he's always there. To have a desire to fellowship with the Lord. That's what he's talking about, to desire. One thing have I desired. One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that's to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That doesn't mean to get your furniture and your clothes and your washer and dryer and move it in sanctuary. <laughs> he is describing what it's like to be where God is, his tabernacle. I think he uses the word pavilion in here in verse 5. It's a place. Nobody can say exactly where God is because God is spirit. Spirit. God identifies himself as being in a secret place or in the heart. Or God speaks of having hands and eyes and ears and a mind and thoughts. He does that so you can relate to him. But God is spirit. And he wants us to have a life that longs after him. As a deer panteth after the water brook, so, so longeth after thee. Do you know anybody like that? Hopefully, we all do. I mean, people who are just caught up with the idea, of oh, I have learned and experienced God to the degree that nothing else is quite like this. I can be sure, like the word confident we used a while ago, I am sure that what he said, he will do it. I have no reason to question anything he's ever said because as God, nothing's too hard. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think because he's God. Notice these things that are spoken of in verse 4, four things. One thing have I desired of the Lord that will I seek after. One, that I may dwell, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. You read something about dwelling in Psalm 23, just a couple of psalms before this. When he said in verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's not meaning that someday you get to because it's offered to you now. There really, really, really is a secret place of the Most High. There really is a place where God can draw his people to him. There really is such a place. These are all things that God has promised. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you put your finger here again in Psalm 27 and look in Psalm 65 and verse four. Psalm 65 and four will require some thought, some pondering here. The theology is pretty narrow. But you can't get around it. It's there. It's eternally there. The word of God shall never pass away. Blessed is the man whom thou what? chooses. Does God choose people? It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible he chooses everybody. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Well, then who's blessed? Well, a man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is the one he's talking about. He said, blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causes to approach unto thee. Let's see if we can get a little quickie on theology here. When it comes to those who are saved, who picks them? God. When it comes to those who are able in Psalm 24, who shall ascend unto the hill of God and who shall stand in his presence? Who will get to do that? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Now, blessed is a man whom God chooses and causes. How does he do that? I don't know. How does he awaken sinners out of their sinful state and alert them into their great spiritual need? How does he do it? Nobody knows. It's an act of God. When you're born again, Jesus says, it's like the wind blowing, you don't know where it came from, you don't know where it goes, you just know that it happened. When a sinner like myself one day is awakened out of his sinful state and begins to discover how sinful he is. And he loathes the fact that he is sinful, but he can't do anything about it. And then he learns later on in your life, you begin to appreciate and to prize highly that act of God that caused you to come to him. Because if he doesn't do this, you can't come. Blessed is the man thou choosest and causes to, to what? Approach? Is that what it says? Approach unto you? That's what God does. Jesus said, No man can come to the Son except the Father who sent him draw them. Draw. Who does the draw? It's God. Learn to appreciate this if you've truly been born again, that God rescued you, the perishing, out of the miry clay, brought your worthless self to him, and is transforming that worthless bag of sin into something that will glorify God in your life. He can do that. But listen, that isn't all. Psalm 65 and verse 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto you, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. I hope you are. I hope you folks here tonight are. Because if you're not, there's nothing you can do about it. God is the one who gives you the opportunity. He draws you to him. He opens the table. He spreads his table before you. You can either be too busy in the world to do it right, right now and walk away from it. It might never come again. He spreads it out like tonight. There it is. I want to make you hungry. Somebody once said, you know, you can lead a mule to water, but you can't make him drink, but you can give that mule some salt tablets. <laughs> and they may not think they want it, but when God gives you a taste of what he's got, he begins to feed you holy manna. It's supposed to do something to us. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Why? So I can walk in your path. I want to know you. I want to know what it's like to walk in the difficulties. You did. I want to know what you experienced in some of those dark, lonely days when you turned to God and you were able to face all your difficulty without opening your mouth or like a lamb led to slaughter. You didn't cry out and, ah, I want to know what you had because I want the same thing. Would you like to have that, to walk like Jesus walked? Go back to Psalm 27. Again, he said in verse 4, Second thing he said, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now, I don't want to leave you with thinking that beauty here means pretty. Beauty can be defined as something like that. If you've ever looked on certain occasional catalogs, we get 46 catalogs a day. We don't quite that many, maybe a week. And most of them have a model of some sort, either shoes or clothes or something. And sometimes some of these women are stunning. They're just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I mean, all their features and all the confirmations, everything seems to be just exactly right. Of course, they're painted and doctored up to look right, but they don't need any paint. Like I told my wife once, why in the world would you want to put anything on that face? You don't need nothing. Of course, she said every old barn needs paint. But anyway, I'm not going to go into that. I read this in the commentary about beauty. Listen to this: any particular thing which is beautiful and pleasing, as the beauties of nature. The word beauty is used to express what is pleasing to the senses, or to the understanding. Thus, will we say uh, the beauty of a thought, or the beauty of a remark, or the beauty of sound, or Man, that was a beautiful service. What a beautiful song. It's something that was pleasing to us. Well, I think this is how the Lord is meant to be understood here, to behold the beauty of the Lord. The fact that he is what he is is wonderful. He's not dazzling in some Hollywood look, but what you see and what you will see, when you see him, you'll be like him, for you will see him face to face, and you will know that this is good. But beauty can also be said, how many times have you been in a service, a religious service like we're in tonight? How many times have you been in a place where you sense that God was revealing himself to you in some way? And it was a beautiful moment in your life. It was good, it was so good. Wasn't a pretty thing, it was just beautiful. The way God meshed things in my heart and put things together and brought out this. Oh, Jesus, it was so good. That's what we ought to behold. That's what we want to behold. That's the way God, I think, would have us to see it. He goes on to say a third thing here is that we will inquire in his temple. That we will inquire in his temple. Inquire means to seek after or to seek for. That's what we're supposed to be doing right now. I'm speaking, you're listening. But you're not listening just to what I'm saying because sometimes I say things which triggers by the activity of the Spirit for you to be thinking about something personal that God is dealing with you about. It took what I said to bring you to that place, but God does that. That's the way he does. To inquire in his temple... A lot of people don't see their need for being here they really don't they probably did at one time I remember here when I was here a long time ago that people wouldn't miss a meeting and now as time rolls along 10 years later 12 years later people miss people that I never thought would miss they don't need to come and make excuses to me. I know there are. There are valid excuses. I mean, there are things that come up, you know, and I do, that where you couldn't be here, just something came up or you were gone. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about having an opportunity. I Just don't want it. I Don't need it. Somebody might say, well, you're just not particularly inspiring. Well, why don't you find a place that you can be inspired? Duh. Or come in play like I'm not here and play like Billy Graham's talking maybe you'll get something I'm telling you this if you bring nothing you'll take nothing home if you brought hunger God will feed you something you won't starve to death because you got to come wanting what he has go to verse 5 My enemies come, and God responds. We're back to that again, but just in verse 5, we'll make this one brief. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. Now, the word pavilion describes a place where you are undetected. You are somewhere, but they don't know where. Or you are there, but they cannot reach you. You are there, but they can't affect you because... God has a way that he protects you and keeps you. The arrow that flies by day, you remember that in Psalm 91? The stalker by night, no evil shall befall you because he will give his angels charge concerning you and they shall keep you in all your ways. Have you ever heard that one? That's in the 91st Psalm. We quote it every month. A pavilion is a protected shielded place where though the tongues of men and wicked men rage against you to devour you they just seem to roll off your back did you hear what so-and-so said about you i can say now at this time in my life 20 years ago i said what i can say now i don't care what so-and-so said You see, if you tell me what so-and-so said, I've got to think about what so-and-so said, and I'm not going to let so-and-so control me. I'm not going to let anybody be the master over me. When I see them, I'm going to start feeling this. I don't want to be controlled by anybody, especially negatively. What somebody did 30 years ago, I'm trying not to preach Sunday sermon, but so many people are. But God offers you a place where he's willing to keep you and hide you. When he said in verse 5 of Psalm 27, a secret of his tabernacle, the word secret is the same word that's used in Psalm 91, the secret place of the Most High. It's a special place, a place for those who personally know the Lord. Not everybody's there. Multitudes of church members aren't there. They hear about it, but there are some who are there. A secret place also in the Bible describes the womb. It's a very private and secret place. That's where you were formed. That's where you were brought forth. Psalms 3 and verse 4, we read a little bit of it there a while ago. Many are they that are camped around about me and so forth. And he talks about the secret place there, his holy hill. See, God brings his people out of the ways of life. I heard somebody preach on this once. He said, the earth is like a chicken lot. Where they're just clucking and carrying on all the time they get up early in the morning and cock-a-doodle-doo and they rooster this and fight that and peck around in that dirt and get mud and stuff all over them. and God makes eagles out of us or we can rise above all of that and soar in the heavens Eagle Saints was a good sermon a good word but when the enemy comes in God begins to give the victory verse 6 he says my victory is my song. And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in the tabernacle sacrifices of praise. I will sing. Yea, I will sing praises unto God. Why does he sing? Now look at that verse again. What prompts us to sing? Let me read it for you. We are prompted to sing because he said, my head will be lifted up above my enemies. In other words, they will not prevail over me. I will not fall prey to them. They cannot defeat me and throw me off course. Therefore, because I recognize God who sustains me, I will offer to him songs and thanksgiving. How many weeks have we been mentioning songs as a part of a sermon? Listen, he who sings wins. He who sings wins. You don't sing, you don't have the victory. Nah, I'm just not the type. Listen, Holy Ghost comes to retype you. I know well, well, I'm just not the kind of person that does all this kind of stuff. Let me tell you something. If God had a typewriter, you know, the old types, He puts you in and whirls you through there and begin to retype you. I am a praising machine. <laughs> and people say, What happened to him? Somebody turned his frown upside down. Verse 9, I recognize my frailty in all of this, lest I be cocky and proud thinking that I'm a superhuman. I find out in verse 9 that hide not thy face far from me, nor put thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God, of my salvation. There are things about me that can anger God. There are many places in the Bible where God was angry because of the conduct of his people. We're no different. If we're not careful, we can open a door to difficulty. He that knoweth to do good and doeth not to him, it is what? Sin. If you don't deal with sin, you invite judgment. It works like that. And so I recognize in all of these wonderful things that we've been talking about tonight, I know that if I'm not careful to stay in tune with the Lord, I can get off key. David knew what he was talking about. Many of the great ones in the Bible, even Josiah, one of the greatest of all the kings, he messed up at the end. If he hadn't have messed up, he might still be ruling. I don't know. None like him before, none like him since, the Bible said But even Josiah, even a Hezekiah, even a Jehoshaphat, even a David can be made to see how frail and weak you are and how easy it is to find yourself in sin and have difficulties come on your life. My need in verse 11, as we come to a close, my need is to be taught. Teach me thy way, O Lord. And lead me in a plain path. Don't you like that? A concrete brick building path. Don't add any fancies and frills to all of this walk. Don't make it complicated. Don't have to go through system after system. Teach me, O God, thy way. And lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Just teach me thy will, Lord, and show me how to walk, show me how to live, show me how to conduct my affairs, to pay my bills, to love brothers, to forgive. Just teach me to walk like Jesus walked. But if somebody doesn't teach me, I can't. Most people just don't study. They don't study enough to know on their own hardly anything. So coming to church is a blessing because you can learn. Somebody can teach you. You can be taught. We all can be taught. And God majors in the New Testament, I think, as well as the Old, to teach us. Again, one of the great stories in the Old Testament is Jehoshaphat, from Second Chronicles 17 to Second Chronicles 20. And Jehoshaphat, when he studied David's ways and saw how God blessed David, he began to order his life in the same way. He wanted his ways to please the Lord, too. And when he did that, the Bible says God began to bless Jehoshaphat till he had more than he needed, by far, thousands of things more than he needed. But Jehoshaphat was so glad about it that he sent teachers throughout all of Israel, his teachers, the men who could instruct his nation. And the whole two kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin, they had this continuous learning experience about the bible and the bible said while that was going on the enemies all around them would not invade them they couldn't why because when a man's ways please the lord he keeps your enemies at bay they can't destroy you and come again i doubt if they even guarded their borders they just went and learned the word and the biggest battle that came against them was maybe as many as asa maybe a million soldiers They did not take a weapon. They did not go out with swords and shields. They went out there and watched them coming right at them, and they began to worship and sing songs to evidence. the fact, they believed God was going to deliver them, though he hadn't yet praised God, he's getting ready to. One of the greatest stories in Scripture. And it's all because a group of people that did that had been taught. Somebody took time to explain to them what the Scripture says, explain to them how it works, and to insist that you walk like this. We have no other choices. With nothing else we can do but this, if you want to walk with the Lord. And he said, teach me thy ways, O Lord. The one translation says, make your way clear to me, O Lord, guiding me the right way because of those who hate me. And you know what he said in verse 13? I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord. So then, in closing, seeing the goodness of the Lord is not something you wait until you see it. And they say, oh, the goodness of You believe that, like goodness and mercy in Psalm 23, you believe that God's favor follows you wherever you go that it doesn't look like you're walking beside a still water or green pastures. It looks like things are pretty arid and dry here, but your heart says no. God didn't promise you that. You may walk through valleys, but he's promised that as your guide, as your shepherd, he will lead you beside still waters and green pastures. He will hold you up so that you don't fall. You will be attacked, and you'll learn how to employ the word of God in those attacks. You will learn that the name of the Lord is a high, high tower, and you'll run to that. It's that secret place, and you'll be safe there because God will be your warrior. He'll stand with you, and, and no weapon formed against you will prosper. Don't you want that? Amen. The most unique people in all the world are the people who are going to live like this. If it's not us, it'll be somebody somewhere because somebody's going to get all this. Amen. They are going to get it. This is going to be the joy of their life, their reason for awaking in the morning and giving God the glory because this is going to become real. What a joy it's going to be when you find it. It's like that pearl of great price. And you'll know it's going to work even though it hasn't worked yet because of faith. I would have fainted unless I had faith. Faith that what God promised, he will do it. I challenge the whole world How's this sound? Big shot, me standing here tonight in this place. Are we going all over the world right now? We're in other countries right now. The only way you will ever find the reality of anything God says is to first believe it, act like it, and go that way. It is God who will add all that makes it work. But you've got to believe it first. And finally, in closing... Verse 14, wait on the Lord. Wait. Who wants to be patient? Interesting word. The root word means a twisting or a winding. It has a picture. One Greek authority says it's like a rope. It's like the weaving together the making of a rope. That's just what the Hebrew word is. But as I try to fathom how that works with the word wait, It's like God extends to us something of him, extends that to us for us to hold on. And though everything about you is coming at you and caving in on you, in due season, God will raise you up. Is that in the Bible, that God will raise you up? But who does he raise up? Well... He said, wait on the Lord and be of good courage. But what about Isaiah 40 in verse 3 where he says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as barnyard chickens, no, as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. You've got to like that. Who? Who are these wonderful specimens of Christianity? Well, it begins with the word wait. I'm taking you at your word. I'm holding on. You're all I got. What you've given unto me, he said, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not what? Okay, you hold on to it because God's going to make this work. Hamilton, grab a hold. I'm scared. Hold on to it. Here they come. They're coming. No weapon formed against you prosper, did it? You're mounting up. You're like a little air, a little, little eagle flying around all over. Look here. You're running, and you're not weary. You're walking, and you know I just can't do it. You can too, can't you? You're not fainting. Wow, I think that's great. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. He is waiting for you because he's long-suffering and he will be there at the right time and blessed are you because he will raise you up at the right time. And if you have a Bible, mark this verse and we're going to go home. Psalms 37. If you'll turn to it, Psalms 37 and verse 34. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. We've been talking about that all night. And he shall exalt thee to inherit the land when the wicked are cut off, thou shall see it. You want that? I do too. May God's favor rest upon us in Jesus' name. Father, in the name of Jesus, may this moment we've had here tonight last. You have given us some good instruction. You have said things to us that weren't said publicly, but you've spoken to our hearts. Ask you to bless those here tonight, those who listen by electronic means. I pray that we will not forget the specific, particular things you said tonight. Find us seeking you, Lord, to seek your face, your presence, like this psalm said. And may we awake to find you with us, leading us, guiding us, blessing us, keeping us. We no longer wonder if you're there, but we will begin to see God is with me. There are needs in this room. I ask you to meet them all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.